Welcome to Cool Explorations, I'm your host Tony Peters. Today we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, and it will be another section from Mike O'Dowd's book, The Gospels. And today's segment is called Grieve Like You Believe. Often when we talk about the rapture and focus so heavily on it, we lose focus on the real purpose of Christ's return. Jesus speaks of the spiritual gifts and the fruits of the Spirit. He does this with a purpose. We are empowered to share God's love and the message of Jesus Christ with all nations. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18 is a central passage in all of the scriptures portraying the event often referred to as the rapture. But the church today often packages this portrayal within a particular narrative that sounds like this. The world's falling apart, the rapture is near, don't miss it or you'll be left behind. In other words, they use the rapture to terrify people into the kingdom. What's troubling about this approach to this text is that it is completely contrary to the very explicit purpose Paul gives for writing it, as we'll see. This passage always provokes deep interest over when the rapture will occur in light of the end times events. Mindful of that deep interest and the depth of the convictions that accompany it, for the record, I believe the scriptures teach the rapture is the next major event in God's plan of redemption and restoration. Furthermore, I believe the rapture will be followed soon thereafter by the great tribulation and Christ's return at the end of the tri that tribulation to judge the earth and establish his kingdom on earth in a thousand year reign leading to eternity. As we move through this future looking part of the story of and the redemption and restoration, uh, we will try and validate the end times timeline, but that's not the focus in this chapter and with this text. The focus is on Paul's purpose for teaching this passage, a purpose he clearly expresses. Paul's purpose in writing about the rapture isn't to terrorize, but rather to encourage and comfort believers who are grieving. The main event in the text is Jesus' future return to resurrect his church to eternal life, but it has been popularly referred to as the rapture for ages because the rapture translates the verb used in Latin, uh, which is a language that was widely used for many centuries in the history of the church, to describe in verse 17 how Jesus will snatch up his church as he resurrects us. So then rapture was coined as a description of that event. But in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul describes the rapture in order to bring hope, hope to the grieving, hope grounded in the promise of the resurrection of the church, and therefore a hope that can be realized in the life of the grieving believer because of this promise. It's an elusive hope. If our understanding of essential matters of our Christian faith is lacking, but a more confident hope can come through a better understanding. Paul here wants to wake people up, to get them to be active for Christ. He wants them to have hope and to be informed. By being informed, they are given the information and tools they need to share the hope of Jesus Christ with all nations. The Holy Spirit will use us to accomplish the will of God. Paul calls for the church to stop sleeping, to stop staying in their comfort zones and giving in to their fears, 
we are called to cast all of that aside because the love of Christ should give us the excitement and desire to share it with everyone. There are going to be consequences and persecution for our faith, but we should be so on fire for Christ that we can't help but to share it. Paul is calling for a revival of the church. Paul writes in verse 13, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have hope. This verse is vitally important in understanding Paul's purpose in writing this passage. Paul has a threefold purpose. Beginning with the Thessalonians' understanding, we do not want you to be uninformed. Paul is indicating that the words which follow in this passage are either intended to introduce or correct an area of teaching, where the Thessalonians are presently lacking in understanding, and that area where they are lacking in pertains to those who are asleep. It was common both within culture, within the culture of the day and within the early church to refer to those who were dead as being asleep, just as a dead body appears to be asleep. Paul wants the Thessalonians to have a right understanding of those who have died because his heart for them in those times of tragic loss or reflecting upon that loss is so that they may not grieve as others do who have hope, who have no hope. If we approach this passage as we often do, expecting Paul to write a detailed theological survey of the end times, we will get frustrated because we'll see Paul failing to more fully provide the details we want. But if we understand the passage as an essential teaching that serves to comfort the grieving, we'll discover that the passage is complete. The pagans in the Thessalonian culture grieved the loss of their dead with a flawed understanding of the fate of the dead, very much like we see in the worldly culture of today. Marked by ignorance, hopelessness, or the vain hope of wishful thinking. But the follower of Jesus Christ need not be ignorant, hopeless, or in vain in their hope as they grieve the loss of a brother or sister in Christ. Our faith in Jesus' resurrection is the basis for our hope, just as verse 13 is important for us to understand because we learn Paul's purpose in writing this passage to grieve the loss of fellow believers with hope. So verse 14 is equally important because Paul explains the particular aspect of our faith in Christ, which makes this grieving with hope so possible. So let's unpack these verses a little bit. The Greek text of verse 14 is difficult to translate, but the New Living Translation does a nice job of giving us a clear sense of the verse. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. So then Paul begins with a point of common understanding with the Thessalonians. Faith in Jesus, his resurrection from the dead, and his future return are things the Thessalonians have already been taught and believed, but they seem to have lacked an understanding of how Jesus' resurrection and the future return affects them, particularly those who have died. 
So when Paul gives them a general understanding of the implications of Christ's resurrection and future return, when that return happens, God will bring back with him, that is Jesus, the believers who have died. In other words, the resurrected Jesus will return, and when he does, he will gather all who have died as Christians and will somehow bring these who have died back with him, with the implication that he is bringing them back to where he came from. All of this is possible because of Christ's resurrection. It becomes reality for believers through faith in Christ because they believe he died and rose again. But will Christ come to gather decayed bodies or bags of dust? What hope is there in that? No, Christ will come to do far more. His resurrection and hope is a hope we can hang our hats on forever, a hope that will not disappoint because our hope in the resurrection is a living hope. Paul declares this to be the very word of the Lord, as he says in verse 15. He then proceeds to describe Jesus' return in verses 15 to 16 as one which was joyful uh, in the implications for the living and the dead. But he emphatically gives the dead in Christ, those whom the Thessalonians and Christians of all ages rightly grieve when they die, preeminence in the occasion of Jesus' return. In verse 15, Paul says, We who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The language in the Greek text is highly emphatic to Paul's point that when Christ returns, the living will be blessed by the outcome, but that the living in Christ will absolutely not precede the dead in Christ. Those who have passed through the crucible of death will have first place on that day. Just as Paul describes so majestically in verse 16, for the Lord Himself will descend from the heaven, uh, will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. There will be no mistaking the day as the Lord commands the sleepers to arise, accompanied by trumpets, and the voice of the archangel. There is a great and glorious hope for the dead in Christ's return, but this is a hope for the living as well. Notice that Paul lumps himself in with the believers who will be alive when Christ returns in verse 15. We who are alive, who are left. The promise of Christ's coming to resurrect the church has always been regarded as imminent by the church, as an event that could happen at any moment. This is the next big step in God's plan of redemption and restoration. It has always been the living hope of the believer to present when Christ returns to forego death and enter directly into the joy of the resurrected life upon his command. You get the sense this was Paul's desire when he writes we in this passage, and you see the excitement and passion in Paul's hope as he writes of this resurrection day in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, 
and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And that's 1 Corinthians 15, 51-55. We shall not all sleep, that is die, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. It is our living hope that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we too shall be changed, even if we have decayed to dust. For if he formed us from the dust, can he not restore us to eternal life from the very same dust? So then, whether we are alive or dead, when he returns, we shall all be forever changed into this resurrected likeness, a point in and of itself which should give great hope and comfort to the grieving. But there is one more aspect of this resurrection. Paul teaches us as a source of hope and comfort. Our hope is in the resurrection, and it's a healing hope. Reunions are a joyful time of coming together. Death is a tragic time of tearing apart. It creates a heartbreaking void in a relationship. It is the ever-present and inevitable reminder of the devastation brought on by the consequences of our sin. The right response to it among the living is weeping and sorrow and grieving and mourning. Paul doesn't teach here that Christians don't grieve, but that they can and ought to grieve as those who have a sure and reliable basis for hope. Don't be the Christian who comes alongside a grieving brother and sister and says, God works all things for good, uh, for the good of those who love him. True text from Romans 8.28. Wrong occasion. Rather, weep with those who weep, which is Romans 12.15. Join others in their grief and without dismissing the fact and deep pain of their grief. Share the healing truth of a coming reunion. Paul writes in verse 17, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. As we grieve because sin and death have torn us from our beloved sisters and brothers in Christ, Paul teaches us here that our grief can lead to healing when we are reminded of the fact that the resurrection of the church will be the greatest reunion in all of history. Once again, Paul emphasizes to we who are alive and who are left, that we will come together with our dearly departed to forever be with one another and the Lord. No more death, no more grief from death, no more separation brought on by death, no more sting. We will all rise together by the resurrection power present in the very life of the resurrected Jesus who will come to gather us perhaps like a hen gathers her chicks. And if we believe these words are true, then real hope reigns in any setting. In verse 18, Paul closes the loop in his train of thought in this passage. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The New American Standard Bible translates it. 
Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Both comfort and encouragement get to the point of the passage. These words refer to Paul's teaching in verses 14 to 17. Through faith in Christ's death and resurrection, both the living and the dead in Christ will experience together the joy of our transformation from perishable mortal people into imperishable, immortal, finished new creations in Christ. It's a message Paul teaches uh, and will enable us to grieve with hope, and it's not a suggestion. The verb encourage or comfort is not only a command, but it is the first command Paul gives in the entire book of 1 Thessalonians. Christians are commanded to share this message of hope with our sisters and brothers who are grieving for their sakes in the midst of their grieving. But we minister in these moments with this message in a day that enters into the grief of a friend rather than dismissing it or running roughshod over it with an ill-selected thought or biblical text. Let's conclude with an illustration that hopefully helps us to learn how to better put Paul's command into practice. Um, We can take a look at, uh, there's a book, Holding Out Hope, uh, drawn by Suffering to the Heart of God by Nancy Guthrie, and she writes of her grief over the loss of her six-month-old daughter, Hope, who was born with a fatal condition which causes her to have constant seizures. We had hope for 199 days. We loved her. We enjoyed her richly and shared her with everyone we could. We held her during her seizures, then we let her go. The day after they buried Hope, Nancy's husband reflected on how their faith influenced how they responded to their loss. Uh, Faith keeps us from being swallowed by despair, but I don't think it makes our loss hurt any less. Our faith in Christ makes the pain and hurt of loss no less real and no less deep. What our faith does give us is a comfort and hope which is not imagined or well-wishing, but very real. As real as an empty tomb and as a risen Savior who is coming back to swallow up every sorrow of death into everlasting life. As we seek to minister to those who suffer from loss, such grief must run its course. We must not commit the grave error of fixing the grieving by trying to lead them away from grieving, rather than walking them through it. When we talk with them through it, weeping with those who weep and grieving with those who grieve on their schedule and not on ours, we speak our love and compassion and care for the grieving in ways far louder than words. If we are to grieve like we believe, then we must respect the door of the broken and grieving heart the scripture teaches we must emphatically walk through in order to have the latitude before God and the grieving to share the comfort and encouraging hope of the resurrect, uh, resurrection Paul commands us to share in First Thessalonians 4. We do, do not want to be you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Revival does not mean everyone is called to be a missionary overseas, or lead worship, or be pastors, 
We are all given spiritual gifts, meaning we all have our ways of supporting one another and encouraging each other with the purpose of spreading the gospel with all nations. We all have our specific areas that we are good at, areas where God called us into. Cast aside your fears and excuses for not sharing the love of Christ with everyone, even in their times of grieving. Share the word with people, no matter where you are. Some of us are really gifted with the gift of encouragement, and people who are grieving, they need that encouragement. So that is the perfect time to share the gospel with them in a loving manner when you can put your arm around them and give them comfort in their time of grieving. So we need to grieve like we believe in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and we need to get on fire for Christ. No matter where we are, we need to share God's word. Thank you for listening to Cool Explorations. Today we've just discussed what was needed in the church, and that is a revival. And that's what Paul was calling for in the church of his day. This message does not change and has not changed over periods of time. We must be on fire and get so passionate that we cannot contain it. We must rejoice together, live a life that reflects Christ's love, and be that light in this world of darkness. Grieve like you believe in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. If you would like to reach me for any reason, you can do so at tpeters745 at gmail.com.